1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
1: Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running.
2: New Balance, run your way.
1: Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts gummies, fruity splits, A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts. Dare to combine.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Women blown up like balloons about to burst. Leaders carving up the globe like a plum pudding. A drunken, sprawling prince surrounded by unpaid invoices. The satirical images of artists like James Gilray, Thomas Rowlandson and Isaac Cruikshank give us an unfiltered look at the preposterous highs and grisly lows of Georgian society. Popular historian and presenter Alice Loxton's new book, Uproar, looks at how these artists pricked the pomposity of politicians, mocked the outlandish fashions of the aristocracy, and gave the people of London a good laugh while they did so. I spoke to her to find out more. So, your new book takes readers back to the raucous world of Georgian London as seen through the eyes of three defining satirists. So before we go on and meet them, can you give us a bit of background? What was going on in the late 18th and the very early 19th century that helped create this golden age of
3: satire? Well, this was perhaps some of the most exciting few decades in British history. We've got an amazing cast of characters, people like William Pitt the Younger, who was our youngest prime minister ever, and he was faced by another pretty formidable character, a big character, I think, a man called Charles James Fox. And they were these kind of political, well, foes for, you know, over a decade. And then there was also people like George Third and George IV, as well as people like Napoleon. So you've got this amazing cast of characters and this pretty dramatic series of events things like the French Revolution, like George III going mad for a few months and causing the Regency crisis, throwing the country into a moment of panic, really. There are episodes such as, uh, well, I suppose the rise of Napoleon is a pretty big one, and the Napoleonic Wars, and points where you know Napoleon has literally got his troops on the north coast of France ready to invade and indeed there was an invasion in Wales at some at one point. So there was a lot of reason for people to think it was dramatic at the time for people to be in panic in very high emotion for lots of the time. And within that there is the set of artists who are capturing all of this in their satires and displaying them in the print shops of London. So yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot for them to work with, I think. Absolutely. So your book focuses
0: on three of these printmakers and artists: um, Rowlandson, Gilray, and Cruikshank. Can you introduce us to them?
3: Of course. So the first thing to know about these men, especially Gilray and Rowlandson, was that they were really well educated in both in a general education, but they had also been students at the Royal Academy schools. And this meant that they had been taught by people like Joshua Reynolds to paint and draw in a high classical manner. So they could have become great portrait painters. They could have created those grand paintings which adorn stately homes, which you probably see if you've been around a National Trust house. But for various reasons, they didn't do that. And they applied what was considered kind of high art techniques to what was considered low art of satires and prints that you could buy in the shops um, on the streets of London. And what this did is it created this brand new area of art where you was really elevating these, what were considered low forms. They were both from London. Uh, Gilray had grown up in Chelsea because his father had ended up there as a, a veteran of the Battle of Fontenoy. And so he went to the, what is now the Chelsea Pensioners Hospital. Rowlandson grew up in the city with his aunt. His family were descended from a, a Huguenot origin and so they had been originally based in Spitalfields. And Isaac Cruikshank had come from Scotland. He actually grew up in Edinburgh on the Royal Mile and he came down to London to seek his fortune. So they all ended up in London, and they all ended up very excitingly, very close to each other, and they're all working in the same streets in London, uh, working in the same print shops, were living really close, you know, eating in the same coffee houses and pubs and mingling together. So it's this really exciting period where there's lots of artists there together, thinking over big ideas, and I suppose developing their their craft and their technique. As
0: you say, all of these artists, they were grounded in these ideas of classical art and quote marks high art, but applied it to satire, which many, as you say, deemed low a low form of art. So for those who did oppose satire,
3: what did it represent? So I don't think people necessarily oppose satire, but they oppose the way that these well-educated artists applied their work to something that perhaps wasn't deserving of their skill. And in many ways, that was true, because people, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a great audience for or make market for selling satires, but they really, you know, revolutionized that and rethought the whole satire world, if you like. They took what was basically something that was done by tradesmen that was just sold in shops on the cheap, and they really elevated it. And so, we had this new kind of art, this kind of satire that was enjoyed not only by ordinary people in the streets who looked at it in the print shop windows, but also royals, earls, dukes. They would uh, pass these satires through their gloved hands at the breakfast table or at a ball or, you know, in in the very smartest houses in the country. So um, it was a really exciting time and what they were doing was really, really new. And I think, uh, you know, in general, people really enjoyed it. And can you tell us a bit about the
0: mechanics of this trade? So obviously, when you're commenting on current affairs, you've got to be really quick off the mark. But these engravings and these prints are really elaborate. So how did they get turned around so quick?
3: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And it's something which I was keen to get to the bottom of in this book. So the way that the prints were created and sold uh, all revolved around a the print shops. So there were several print shops in London run by people like Hannah Humphrey who's one of the main characters in our book actually lots of them were were run by by women which was really exciting and they were businesses in their own right and these print shops would You know they would commission the prints they might commission books as well they might commission all sorts of things and they would display them in their print shops so those are the print shop windows that would be displayed to the street but wealthier members of society could also come into the print shops be kind of schmoozed by Hannah Humphrey and sit on very nice sofas and look through prints and then they might buy them for themselves and they're quite a premium product so it was only the wealthy who could actually purchase them. So Hannah Humphrey would be selling them and she would be, you know, the business end of the operation, the kind of Simon Cowell, if you like, who's, who's, you know, managing all these other artists. There would be these artists like James Gilray, like Thomas Rowlandson, like Isaac Cruikshank, who would be commissioned. And probably, you know, I think it was quite a fluid process. They probably talk about it quite a lot. If you think about... um, newspaper commissioning today, you know, there's a newspaper or perhaps magazine commissioning, you know, you often work with the same people, but it's not necessarily a a one-way process. You probably discuss it quite a lot, perhaps as friends, perhaps as more colleagues with some other people. So it was a real mixture of relationships. But then, you know, say Gilray was commissioned or had agreed to make a print of a political event say let's take the news of the the regency crisis which was a moment in 1788 when george iii was what appeared to be going mad in that he sort of lost all of his senses and he and this was reported to people in london and Rowlandson and gilray and the like they were producing prints hot off the press about the events that were going on Now, they would hear this news, and then I think they would run back to wherever they were working, sometimes their own sort of flat, sometimes behind the print shop itself, all sorts of different setups. And they would just basically, they have these metal plates, a kind of copper plate or metal plate. And these were perhaps A4, A3 size, and they would use these different types of tools, perhaps a kind of etching burin, a kind of what we would see today is basically like a, a metal pencil, and they would scratch into the plate creating these images. Sometimes they would use different types of pens, that, ones that might make a kind of dotted pattern, or they might start cross-hatching, or they might, you know, do all sorts of different ways to make different marks on the on the plate. And then this plate would be inked, so they'd fill it with ink, and then they would place a damp piece of paper on top and they would roll into it and then they would lift up the piece of paper and reveal the print and that was one way of doing it. Another way is that they would cover the metal plates with what they'd call a wax ground and then they would scrape away this wax ground to leave a, a an image, a print, and then they would put this wax covered metal plate into a bath of acid and then it would eat away at the bits that had been exposed, and then you take it out and wash off the wax ground. So then, you know, there are various ways of doing that. And then after that, you might, you know, add extra details, perhaps wispy hairs, perhaps the text. And of course, you've got to remember that all of this was done in the reverse. So, you know, when they're writing or they're doing words, which I have done, because I did do a course in this, it's, it's pretty impressive how neatly they managed to finish it off. So then you've got the prints and then you know, with the the metal plates, these can be used again and again and again, about 100, 200 times, perhaps, depending on how detailed they are. And then you've got your first print run, and of course the the plate does get more and more clogged up. You can't use it after a while, and so that's why they had these limited runs, which I guess gave them a, a kind of premium. And so that's the, that's the process of the having the prints. And then they would be coloured, uh, perhaps by, you know, perhaps under the instructions of the artist, but perhaps under the instructions of the print seller. And so that's why often today you might look at one print, say the plum pudding, which is the most famous one, but it might be coloured in different ways. And that's because different people have actually coloured it. And then once you got the print, the print seller would put it up in the print shop window and then hopefully get some sales. So <laughs> that was the, the the process start to finish. But your question was, how could they create them so quickly when we're talking about these political events? Well, that was what was so impressive that, you know, they would have these probably one, two day turnarounds. What's so great about the prints is they're all dated. So they've all been dated. They've all been dated with who's published it, who created it, who came up with the idea. And so you can really clearly track the news that has arrived in London or the way that the newspapers have reported something and that a day later, Gilray has made a print, which is obviously influenced by that. So you can see exactly what they would have been doing in those 12 hours or so, which is really exciting. And it was definitely exciting, fast-paced, literally hot-off-the-press kind of process that demanded um, very, very quick reactions as we do with newspapers and on social media today
0: something that's always really intrigued me about this satire is in an age before photography and before video how did everybody know who was being depicted because obviously not everybody would have seen these politicians or these royals was there kind of a common currency in the way that you portrayed people
3: yeah, it's a really good question. Well, we know that in terms of actually creating the prints, people like Gilray would actually go and watch politicians speak. That was a great, you know, there was a there was a viewing gallery in in the House of Commons, so you could actually sit there and watch William Pitt give his speeches. Unfortunately, if you're a woman, you couldn't watch in the gallery. You had to go and stand at the very top in the kind of lantern area. So you got a pretty bad view. But if you're a man, you could go and see these politicians in action in the flesh and we know that they could capture people you know from from these kind of sessions very well and very effectively Um, and even Gilray was used at one point as a war artist to go and depict you know sketches for another artist of the what was going on on the front line as it were Um, so he was really good at capturing people's kind of exactness and likeness We know that the prints that these artists made did actually effectively portray the people at the time. So if you knew who William Pitt was, you would recognise him in the prints that were produced. Of course, lots of people had never seen William Pitt, so that's a great question. You know, what about the people who hadn't seen William Pitt and hadn't, wouldn't even know if Gilray's depiction was accurate? Well, I think that Gilray almost although he was working with real depictions of people, he did exaggerate their forms and he did almost create these characters. You know, so Pitt is turned into this really... I mean, he was a tall guy who was pretty skinny and, you know, that was his kind of look. But he was really stretched out to be this really skinny, really lanky guy with this big nose and this really peculiar face shape. And, you know, the artists really play with that. There's this one print where Gilray depicts... William Pitt and this rather large lady, Albinia Hobart, and instead of, you know, he really takes that to the extreme, where he makes her into a sphere, pretty unkindly, you might say, and he puts Pitt as a plane, and it's this kind of take on this ancient, on uh, this kind of ancient mathematical idea, but it's a plane versus a sphere. So there's lots of fun that he they, they, they have with it, but, um you know, and, and the most... Classic example of that, I suppose, of creating a character that people can immediately recognise is with Napoleon. That uh, you know they create this character of Little Bony, and that becomes much more recognisable for people than perhaps the real Napoleon himself.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring. Need to hire? You need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
2: gem of a detour.
0: Absolutely. I mean, most of these portraits were pretty unkind, I think it's fair to say. But did being satirised ever work to somebody's advantage?
3: I guess all publicity is good publicity. Could be one take on that. Absolutely. So politicians today, I've spoken to politicians about this a lot and asked, you know, what is it like to be satirised? And I actually spoke to George Osborne at this one event, which was unveiling the new uh, gravestone of James Gilray. It's a strange event, I have to say. But he said, you know, he's someone who's been satirised himself, but has also commissioned satire, working as more of a journalist. And so he was really interesting to talk to. And he basically said that, you know, people do like it as a mark of recognition. He said that he went to a senior, quite prominent conservative... Politician's house in the early 2000s, and he went in. This was young George Osborne, went in, and the entire entrance hall was covered in satires of this politician. So, you know, people today still love being satirised, and it was the same in the 18th century. It was a real mark of recognition. The example that I can think of, really, that rings a bell is about George Canning. George Canning, who was a future prime minister, but when he was making his early steps into the world of politics, he he really petitioned, um, he had a mutual friend of James Gilray and he really petitioned to try and set up this meeting so that he would... Kind of bump into Gilray, and they try all these things, like, oh well, look, why don't I give you this this parcel and and you can drop it off, and then you can pretend that you just bumped into him, and you know, then you can try and try and make your way into to to, to becoming in his prints. Anyway, it took several months and lots of disappointment for Canning to get into one of these prints, you know, and we know this because there are letters between Gilray and his friend saying, oh, I'm really sorry, I haven't included Canning yet, but you know this it's a great print coming up or something anyway eventually canning does make it into a print and he must have been absolutely delighted uh, although, you know, the print in question depicts him being hanging from a lamppost outside White's Club in this imagination of what would happen if uh, revolution, the revolutionaries arrived in Britain. So, you know, although it was this triumphant moment for Canning, probably, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps Gilray was having a bit of a, a laugh, you know, putting him in this quite desperate position. But um, yeah, no, it's definitely a mark of being someone who was on the political stage and worthy of being spoken about, I suppose. But from looking at these
0: artists' work, did they have staunch political views that they were kind of espousing? Or were they happy to switch sides depending on, you know, which side their bread was buttered on?
3: Yeah, well, that's a great question. And that is a question which historians have debated a lot, you know, in the Victorian period, as well as today, people have really tried to work out why they were making these prints? Were they doing it because they believed in the Tory party or the Whig ideas? Were they doing it just to put bread and butter on the table? Were they doing it because, you know, they were just told to do it by someone else? Or were they being paid perhaps by certain people? The answer is it's a mixture of things. Um, For example, you know, in the early years, there are weeks when, say, Thomas Rowlandson will produce a print in support of the Prince Regent. And then about three days later, he'll do one which damns him. Same with William Pitt, you know, the same with all these characters. So throughout their life, they will happily critique everyone, you know, equally in equal measure, I think. But there are points where we know that some of them were paid to make certain prints. So for example, Gilray was paid by Pitt's government at one point. Uh, It's, it's quite hard to work out exactly for how long. And that's what's interesting, because then you're looking at some of these prints and thinking, you know, is is he being paid there or not? But especially at the points where the fear of revolutionary activity in Britain, you know, following the French Revolution, following the rise of Napoleon and the threat of Napoleon, that certainly becomes more pronounced that Gilray is making these pro um cartoons if you like or you know uh, cartoons which create these great ideas of patriotic zeal and you know it's all about french versus english or the you know the, the the failings of napoleon and that sort of thing but um so we know that they were paid at certain points and in the um accounts of george the 4th or the future george the 4th there are payments to Rolinson at certain points which show that Rolinson was made to create prints that supported him and supported his his uh, ideas as being a regent during his father's illness. So, yes, it is a mixture, but I think well, it's interesting. When you talk to modern cartoonists about this, they really say things like don't forget that it's kind of hard enough being a cartoonist and being a satirist and actually don't forget, these people were probably just trying to, you know, get to get to the end of the day and get, you know, it's it that was their trade, and they'd probably do whatever they could just to have an income. Um, and you know, if this job was coming up or if that job was coming up, they'd do it. Uh, having said that, also, you know, they obviously were wanting to create prints which were would which would sell, and so they would create prints which were popular. You know, which would fuel the popular imagination. I think one of the big questions is. Were they reacting to what other people were thinking or were they trying to propel new ideas which would then influence people? Again, it's a mixture of both and I could give you examples either either way. But yeah, it's really interesting and the more that you look at it and the more that you look at their intentions and their ideas behind it, it's, it's it becomes even more complicated. <laughs> of course, some of these prints are incredibly silly
0: But some are quite serious. And something that you've alluded to throughout our conversation is this turbulent international backdrop, these ideas of revolution um, that kept creeping in at the edges. Um, So how did satirists respond to those kind of weighty international issues at this time? As well as this age of great political rivalry and wrangling, we also have an age of aristocratic and royal decadence and extravagance and drama. Can you tell us a bit about how those figures were portrayed?
3: Yeah, so I mean, the really important thing with Gilray and Rowlandson and Crookshank and all of the satires at this point is that we often class them as political satirists, which indeed they were. And that was perhaps some of their greatest work. But they created satires about every aspect of life. I mean, every aspect of life nothing was missed out you know from people tiptoeing from people sleepwalking from people falling asleep at home falling asleep at church taking snuff taking medicine everything was depicted and it both they both featured people in their ordinary lives as well as famous people as well as political events as well as celebrities and you know as as it is today depicting celebrities and making fun of celebrities was just as popular then as it is now. And I think the things that they liked ridiculing the most was people's fashions. One of the prime suspects, if you like, was the Duchess of Devonshire, the character who was played by Kira Knightley in The Duchess so wonderfully. And there she is wearing all of those those feathers and, you know, with all of that lace and all, all that amazing kind of uh, fur and and velvet and all of these amazing materials. And Gilray and Rowlandson and Crookshank, they loved making, making a mockery of that fashion because it's so easy to do visually. You know, you can... You can really, you can really show quite how ridiculous people are through satire and through these visual images, um, especially as Duchess of Devonshire, she was you know, she would often get involved in politics. So she, you know, in the early election, she would be there campaigning, Covent Garden, and there were stories that she was kissing butchers for votes and all this kind of scandalous sort of thing going on, which was probably untrue. But, you know, that was brilliant content for the satirists. And, you know, with all this, the fashions and her... stories of her scandalous life as well you know gambling away vast fortunes in Devonshire house and drinking all sorts of you know who knows what but yeah I mean celebrities were just as vulnerable if you like to a Gilrayic satire as any politician and I think perhaps the lines crossed over you know Charles James Fox he was a politician but he was also a celebrity as well So in in the book that I've written, uproar, I've basically gone through chronologically and just taken them, just taken the reader through the events that happen, and every event is very different, and every event they react to in a different way. But I think you know when there is this moment of national crisis, particularly at the turn of the century, when people were pretty scared that Napoleon would actually invade, the satirists are pretty united in presenting a patriotic. Uh, a patriotic display, being very very rude about Napoleon, if you like, and also championing things like British liberty, and you know why you should, why we need to fight this this uh, emperor Napoleon, why you know why the French are much worse than the English, that sort of thing. So it's pretty it's pretty straightforward propaganda, if you like. So there's definitely points of propaganda. There are moments when the criticism of the crown and George III does soften. And I think that is because, you know, that's not because they're just being paid by William Pitt or they're just reacting to, you know, whatever whatever jobs are on the line there. I think it's important to note that people were genuinely very scared. And I should think that, you know, although Gilray and Rowlandson were were working in this world, they also were also citizens of Britain they were reacting in the same way that everyone else was reacting and there was a lot of reason to be worried or scared or anxious at that point and I'm sure that they at that point were conveying some of their own emotion as well as what they thought other people wanted to see so something I really wanted to ask you
0: was you have all these incredible images in your book but what are some of your own personal favorites maybe you can nominate a couple
3: writing uproar it was very difficult to choose which images to include because there are so many and that's a really important thing to note there are thousands of these prints and to select just a few is very difficult because you're always missing out far more than you're ever going to include so this you know this entire book is just scratching the surface of what you could include um even you know the collection in the British Museum itself, there are there so many to get through, and you know who knows there are so many prints which exist in other people's collections as as well as varying you know versions of each of the prints. So there's a lot to get through, but um, one of my favourites is one called "A Voluptuary Under the Horrors of Digestion," and that is a depiction of the Prince Regent, or you know George the oldest son, the future George the Fourth, and. It's a pair of prints. The other one shows his father, but this one shows George IV. I mean, the centre of the print is this enormous sphere, this bulbous form, and that is the prince's tummy itself. (laughs) So it's got this massive round tummy right in the middle, and the prince is kind of leaning back in this, what would what historians would call a Hegarthian stance, where he's kind of reclining in this chair. He's picking at his teeth with a fork because he's just finished this enormous meal. Uh you could see on the table there's bones strewed out, there's uh he's kind of bitten, it looks like. He looks like he's actually just bitten into a great hunk of meat. There are empty glasses, there are bottles rolling around the floor, and then there's all these clues, you know, so this is the great thing about Gilray, is you can play this game where you can kind of tick off what clues you can find. So in the bottom corner we've got this, um, this pile of little books, and this this shows his uh, the horse horse racing and the the kind of um, the racing tips for that week, if you like, you know, and that's a real hint to his terrible gambling habit. And behind him, there's this overflowing chamber pot, you know, really suggesting that he's this horrible kind of unclean character, lazy, gluttonous, that sort of thing. And then there are all his bills unpaid and debts unpaid. And then there are all these medical potions, which, you know, the doctor trying to deal with all of his his various illnesses because of his indulgences. And then there's this Prince of Wales coat of arms. But Gilray very carefully here has replaced what would be the coat of arms with the thing that this prince holds most dear, which is a knife and fork. And then in the window in the background, there is this kind of building works where you can see these classical columns. And this is him building Carlton House. And Carlton House was this incredibly wasteful project. I mean, you think about the way that people criticise the government today about, oh, you wasted all this money on this building work. But it, honestly, what George IV did really put that to, to shame because, you know, he spent all of these years building this extravagant palace, basically, in the centre of London with all these different rooms and you know, at the at vast expense on, on public money. And then when he became king, he just knocked it down. This whole image, if you look at all the details, it's really this quite detailed portrait of George Fourth and all of his follies and foibles. And I think Gilray's just captured it really wonderfully.
0: Absolutely. And I would really encourage listeners to go away and look that image up because it's well worth looking at, isn't it? So Alice, how did this golden age of satire then come to an end? So it's a
3: dramatic end, really, because I don't want to give too much away. (laughs) Um, But I've mentioned before that there was this amazing cast of characters. And there were these, you know, there was this amazing moment where we had this sudden burst of creativity from these artists. And that really peaked, I think, in about 1800. I, I really look at it as a period from sort of 1780 to 1810. Because in around 1806, you know, many of these characters disappear. Nelson, Pitt, Charles Fox, Duchess of Devonshire, so they all kind of suddenly disappear in 1805, 1806. And then in 1810, this several of the artists themselves... I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, several of the artists kind of go off the scene in very dramatic ways, a mixture of madness and suicide and drinking far too much. And, you know, it's a very sad kind of decline, and it all happens very suddenly. Um, But what's really interesting about the decline of the satirists and the way that they sort of disappear is that I think it correlates with a decline or change in the country, a shifting mood. So, you know, the 1810s, it's suddenly effectively George III's reign has come to the end because he is suffering from whatever he was suffering from and he is incapable of acting as king. So it is the Regency period. George IV, one of the most hated men <laughs> in the country. That's not my opinion. That is the opinion of everyone else who's ever written about him, becomes king. All these sort of things go wrong. The Luddites are making themselves better known. Spencer Percival, the prime minister, is assassinated. That's pretty bad. There's the year without summer. I mean, I think that's a pretty big omen. There's the Peterloo massacre. And then we get to the 1820s and there's this real change of mood it's almost like they're looking back at the regency period where they're thinking actually all of those things that we once thought were funny and really rude and hilarious and the way that we used to be really sick after drinking too much or gamble away an entire fortune that was that was funny then but actually looking at it now it's it's not it's almost (laughs) like the Regency or the uh, 1800s was, the, you know, the early 1800s was when the party was happening. And then by the 1820s, they're sort of looking at it the next morning in the cold light of day thinking, actually, that's not funny anymore. We don't think those artists were funny. We think it was, that's a bad joke, actually. And it's a bit insensitive and a bit rude and a bit uncouth. And so there's this change and shift. And lots of people start writing about Gilray and Rowlandson and Cruikshank and all these artists and about how much they wasted their talents and how horrible their art was and how disgusting it was and how they had no morals and so there's a lot of Victorian writers who really damn them and in the book you know I do I call it they've been I say that they've been cancelled because I think they effectively were written out of history Um, but it's also a change in technology because in the early 1800s there were developments in printing that meant newspapers could print in a much cheaper way and Images could be produced in a different way. And basically by the sort of 1830s, we had started to have new magazines like, say, Punch, where they could print loads of images all the time. And it basically became the age of the newspaper cartoon rather than the satires in the print shop window. And so instead, you know, if people wanted to get the latest visual commentary or the latest joke or the latest pun, they wouldn't rush to the print shop window as they once had done, but they would rush to get their copy of Punch. And I think that's really the death of 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 people like Gilray. And you can see it generationally because Isaac Cruikshank, who's one of the great artists of Gilray's age, the, the late Georgian age, his son is George Cruikshank, And George Cruikshank is advised not to go into satire and not to waste his talents on satire, but to do something more, you know, more worthy of his skills, as as they put it. So yeah, it's a really interesting big shift. And I don't think we've ever shifted away from it. We're still being told what to laugh at and what to like by Victorians. And I've I've written the book to change that, really. And so for people who read
0: your book? What would you want them to take away from it? What do you think that these artists can tell us about this period of British history?
3: First of all, you need to know that this is an introduction. As I've said, this is the tip of the iceberg. And all I've done here is just try to make a book where people can experience these artists for the first time. Weirdly, you know, the only books that have ever been written about them have been academic books or coffee table books. And so there's never been a book that's for you to read on a sunbed in wherever you are on holiday you know that kind of book. And so that's why I wrote it. But what I'd like to people to take away from it is to go and google these people, just go and have a look at them and experience it for yourself, you know. There's so much more to be discovered and I think there's, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction that can be found from them because they're such accessible sources. But what can we learn about the Georgian age from them? Well, I think this is like looking at the true Georgian age. This is like looking at the Georgian age unfiltered, unphotoshopped. The way that I often think about it is comparing a painting by the likes of say Reynolds with a cartoon or a satire of the likes of say Gilray. We often think of the Georgian Age as the characters in that age through the, the lens of a Reynolds painting, you know, a great classical pose, and those are the images which spring to mind when you, you know, you picture then Pride and Prejudice or Bridgerton, you know, it's that kind of world. But actually, and and, and then if you compare those images, you realise actually how different and how false those images are. So Reynolds might take a take an image. Well, let's take George IV. We've already talked about him. Reynolds or, you know, a similar artist's kind of depiction of George IV would depict him as quite um a grand figure, a noble figure. His skin would be airbrushed his figure would be probably, you know, his waist would be brought in a few inches. He would be depicted standing in a grand landscape, classical landscape, perhaps, or reading a a great book or, you know, whatever. It's all of these attributes, which just aren't true. It's a fiction. It's false. It is completely photoshopped. It's like having an Instagram filter on things. Whereas Gilray, what he did and what his fellow artists did was give us the truth. Think of the George IV that I've just described from that Gilray print. He, He's, you know, he's not holding back here. He's not being dishonest or airbrushing. It's completely raw truth. And so many of the images, whether it's the fact that they are just physically depicted in their honest way, perhaps you know this is an image of uh, somebody falling asleep or sleepwalking, and that's you know an, an aspect of Georgian life that we don't normally get a, an insight into, or whether it's a satire, which is basically saying okay, these are the, this is what you might have said in your speeches, but this is the truth, isn't it? This is like the key thing that we need to take away from this, or this is how everyone's feeling at the time. Either way, they tell a much more honest view of Georgian life and a much more fun and intimate view of Georgian life. So... I just really want to open people's eyes to these artists and just bring them back. Have a Gilray comeback, if you like. I'll know this book's been a big success if there is a movie made. <laughs> and there's a movie with some big superstars playing the main characters. That will be the marker of success. So yeah, I really hope that people could just enjoy them as much as I have enjoyed writing about them.
0: That was Alice Loxton speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorne about her book Uproar, satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London. Alice is a popular historian and presenter who you can find on Instagram and TikTok at history underscore Alice. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.